Hey Jim, did you hear the news? Hi Ashley, what news? The university is sending students home to prevent the coronavirus from spreading. Ah, uh, yes I did. Hashtag flatten the curve. Hashtag flatten the curve? Jim, I didn't know you were a tweeter. I've been called worse. Hi, I'm Ashley Mytek, and by now you've probably heard about the suspension of face-to-face -face classes at colleges, the cancellation of conferences and music events, and even the NBA season. And of course, the saddest part of it all, Pearl Jam canceled their tour. Today, I'm talking with Jim Lowe from the University of Illinois to discuss the measures that are being taken to prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus and the thinking behind these strategies. Welcome to The Round Barn. Just so everyone's aware, we're recording this on Thursday, March 12th, and things are changing rapidly, so stay tuned for any updates. So Jim, let's get started. Many universities, including ours, have announced they're canceling in-person classes, and other events with large gatherings have also been canceled. Does this make any sense? Well, actually, I mean, it's, it's uh, a challenge, right? Because we don't have a vaccine, the virus is spreading rapidly, we are in an epidemic, and so we are trying to flatten the epidemic curve. We're trying to have fewer cases. What do you mean by flatten the epidemic curve? So that's the, the fancy medical term, right, we use when we think about new cases. And so we tend to track the number of new cases per day. And the last week, it's been going up very rapidly. And so if you think about putting uh, the number of cases per day on a chart and just drawing a line graph, we're going up. And it tends to go up. And then at some point, we run out of infected people and or infected animals and you know the world you and I live in every day. And then the number of new cases starts to drop every day. So it's kind of like a, a mountain. You go up the mountain, and then you come down the mountain. And the goal with all of these strategies is to make the mountain a little shorter. So um, we're not going to stop this disease. I mean, it's the genie's clearly out of the bottle. It's moving around. So the challenge now, you know, as we talked last time on one of these podcasts, is how do we minimize its impact? And that really means how do I have fewer total cases or how do I take those cases uh even if I don't change the number, how do I make those cases occur over a longer period of time so I don't overcome the health, overwhelm the healthcare system and um, really put a lot of pressure on you know at high at-risk populations? So we've, we've identified, and they were just talking this morning on the news that you know the case fatality rate in people over 80 is is higher than it is in people over 60 and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do we protect uh, you know? We've seen the mess in, in Seattle in the nursing home, which unfortunately is probably what is to be expected. We put a novel disease in a group that's probably not very immunocompetent in a really close location with a lot of contact, and you're going to see a massive outbreak and unfortunately, right, a, a high rate of mortality much higher than other cases. And so all of these things we're doing uh, are all designed to lower that. And my favorite term is social distancing. Um, that so, means we shouldn't be sitting as close as we are now. At one meter, we have to stay apart. So those of, those people that are huggers, this is going to be really hard for them. No hugging, they, no, no kissing. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I mean, all those challenges, right? And so um, we think about that. And why does the nursing home become a problem? Well, there, if, if you need help in bed or you need help getting out of bed, well, social distancing is obviously a problem because I need to touch you to, to get you out of bed and to help you with that. So... We're just trying to minimize that impact. And all of this is to how do we 
decrease the chance of contact between infecteds and susceptibles? And really, how do we de- minimize the contact between infecteds and really vulnerable? So that's why the universities have come out and said, we're going to essentially cancel classes or, or switch to an online environment. And essentially now we're, we're trying to minimize those interactions. But I guess the question is, is that really going to benefit it, benefit us as a community? Is, or is it just sending the disease back to wherever they're from? Well, I think that the, the interesting bit is, right? So we, we're, we're sitting in Champaign, Illinois, and we haven't had any reported cases in the community yet. And I, I think the emphasis is reported cases. Um, so we haven't tested anybody that's positive in the area yet. Doesn't mean we don't have any infections. But I think the real thought is, is that we're heading into spring break season. If you look at all these universities that are stopping class being taught in person, it's it's all associated with spring break. And so we're going to send people from this campus all over and then bring them back. And so the, the fear is, right, we live in a community of 100,000 people. And so all of a sudden we bring 50,000 students back or whatever the number of those that are traveling, it wouldn't be all of them, obviously, but some percentage back into here. And so do we put our community at risk that we live in? And do we put them at risk? Because it's really commingling. It's this mixing. We take it from all over the place and bring them back. So I think if we were post spring break and this was happening, we might see a different response because while they're already here, so uh, let's not send them off into the wild, um, but because they're going to go into the wild because we're in this, this spot that they're gonna leave, I think it, it does make some sense not to bring them back and, and put them at risk and, and put the community at risk, et cetera. One of the questions that our college is getting asked a lot is can dogs and other pets get COVID-19? And we've been trying really hard to educate the public not to panic about this, that there is no evidence that dogs can become sick from this disease and that they can spread it to humans. How do we combat this what is seems to be now a panic state of this virus, everybody thinking, you know, they're going to get this virus and it has a very high potential mortality rate compared to the flu, at least. What should be the right message of panic level to the public right now? Well, the, the human mind's an interesting thing, isn't it? Right. Because we talk about this in, in you know, we kill or tens of that we kill it's the wrong word. We, we have tens of thousands of people that die from influenza. Influenza kills tens of thousands of people a year. And that doesn't make the news. And this makes the news because it's new and we talk about it. So, you know, as an infectious disease person, it's really easy to be a bit cynical and say, uh, yeah, this is what we'd expect. And it's not that big a deal. But you know, if you're, that's really good as long as you're not the one who dies, right? So the mortality rate's really low, but if you're the one who dies, that's a, unfortunately, all of a sudden that's really important to you, right? So I think those are the challenges. I, I think there's been some messaging challenges because we haven't been able to test as much as we'd like to. We really don't know the number of infections. You know, there are probably tens or hundreds or thousands more infections than we've reported as cases. And the cases are basically what we've tested positive. And because we know there are people who are asymptomatically affected or very mildly affected and they didn't get tested and those aren't getting reported, et cetera, et cetera. So the actual percentage of people who are dying of those that are infected is much, much, much lower, several orders of magnitude lower than what's happening. But there are still mortalities and there is still concern. And because we don't have a great control strategy, that becomes the challenge, right? So it's 
having dealt with this on the livestock side, which is obviously a whole lot less important than human pandemic, but uh, we, we dealt with a novel disease introduction in, in pig populations here in, in 2013-14. It was a pandemic within the pigs. It spread across all the pigs in the country with relatively high mortality rates. And we're talking about African swine fever coming to the U.S. I mean, it's the same conversation. You see the same behavior with that those groups that are affected, right? That, that panic sets in and we really start to... Um, make some what are probably irrational decisions. And so we've talked about all these movements, right? We put travel bans in and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we put a travel ban in last night with Europe for 30 days. And whether that's reasonable or not is way, way above my pay grade. Is that what you would do with pigs in yeah, this type of situation? Yeah, that's absolutely, yeah. It's, it's so much easier in our world because we would just say we're going to quit moving things. Uh, or we would just move. shut down the pig farm. And we would say shut down the pig in. farm. Nothing comes in, nothing comes out, or the things that are going out only go to harvest. And so that's it's obviously easy to do that with livestock. Well, it's not perfectly easy to do that with livestock, but there aren't all the moral and ethical issues around that, right? And so one of the challenges in the country we live in, right, we can't make those big edicts and say no one goes anywhere anytime. Uh, not only their economic consequences, right, but we do live in America and we have a constitution and, and we have personal freedoms and those things. And those things are really, really important. So how I would just scientifically line up my head and say, we need to go do X, Y, and Z. We know those tools work. We're going to quit moving anything. We're going to go to strict disinfection. Um, we, we wouldn't let people come in and out of a pig farm without taking a shower and changing their clothes. And so, right. If I ask you to, hey, you can't come to work without taking a shower and changing your clothes when you come in, like you have to wear the clothes of the company when you're here, the university, right? That's going to be a no, not doing that. And so, I mean, there's just some, we know the hyper effective tools that work when they're implemented aren't really practical in this case, aren't within our ethics and values. And so we have to try some of these other things in terms of let's not have people go to class, let's not have people to meetings, let's stop travel. How do we have meetings virtually? So it seems like the two biggest things that we really can do at this point is to prevent people movement or exposure to large crowds or commingling and then also just basic common sense of wash your hands type thing. And and is there anything else in that message to the communities? Um, that are going to be affected by this, of what they can do? I think we have to prioritize, right? So if we have um, high-risk individuals, um, so people who are older or people who have underlying health conditions or both, and unfortunately those go together, right, often, we need to put a lot of extra emphasis around those folks and say, how do we really do outreach and how do we do um, uh, improve infection control, hand hygiene or, uh, around those kinds of folks. So we're closing nursing homes in the community and that kind of stuff, and there's been some uproar, but that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Let's not expose people who are, the outcome is likely to be much worse. I think the other thing is, is that we do need a message that most of the people that are infected, nothing happens. And so you and I are of reasonable health and, and reasonable age, and so we're probably not a huge risk, and so we probably need to wash our hands and go on with our day. Um, now, we need to be smart. We don't need to get on an airplane and fly to China or fly to Italy where these other hotspots. I'm not suggesting that, but our lives need to go on. And then I think the third bit, and this really comes out of, of when I see, when we work with pig farms, and, and, and just let me take the analogy a bit. 
When we have desperate economic situations, we tend to make decisions that are um, a bit of a disaster for disease management. Because when there's significant economic pressure, we do what's in our self-interest in the short term, not what's in the community interest in the long term. So I think that's the other spot. I mean, as I'm thinking about, ah, what can we do differently? It's people are gonna be affected economically. I just want it's important you and I continue to go to the store and shop and drive the economy because if we start closing stores and people who are living paycheck to paycheck don't have a job, they're gonna to start to make some decisions that aren't necessarily good for the rest of us. And so I think there's this underlying economic toll we gotta to think about that um, how do we not put people in decisions that they have a choice of bad and worse? Sure, that makes, that makes sense. You talked about the infection rate or that from the standpoint of you and me, that this, this virus, knock on wood, hopefully isn't gonna be that detrimental to our health. And the German prime minister just predicted that the infection rate there could reach 70%. Um, is there a difference between being infected and then having the disease? That's really a key component of when we think about this. So when we think about cases, we typically are talking about those that got infected and they didn't clear the infection. So they have a disease event after that. So just like um, the common cold that goes around every year, and this is not the common cold, but the common cold that goes around every year, you and I may be in the same room and, and my wife had a, a, a cold here two or three weeks ago. It went on for weeks, it seemed like like everybody's cold has gone on this year. And I, I never had a sniffle out of this. I felt bad maybe for 24 hours, but I cleared it, right? So I was probably infected, but not diseased because I'm, my immune system kicked it out. I'd seen it before, whatever. She was not, and she got diseased. And that's really what's going on with this. We're gonna have a lot of people that are infected. They see the virus, their immune system deals with it. They move on. And there are other people who see it and their immune system doesn't get rid of it right away and now they're gonna end up having disease, they're gonna be sick. And so I think when, when Angela Merkel's talking about a 70% infection rate, she's really talking about the number of people that are gonna see the virus and clear the virus, not the number of people that are gonna actually have, 70% in Germany is not gonna get sick. I would predict that if you just look at epidemic theory, it's probably gonna be a lot higher than 70% at some point over the next couple of years, right, we're probably all going to see the virus, right? Because we all commingle and we all move around, but we're not all gonna get diseased. Let's talk about testing here for a little bit, which I feel like is a hot topic also in the media because there seems to be some issues with, do we have enough tests available and are we gonna have to ration the tests and who gets priority to be tested? So can you talk a little bit about why is it important to test and how, how are we going to use that as a, an asset to control this? Yeah, ideally, let's just let's just go to our fantasy land. Ideally, we would test all over the United States all the time, somewhat regularly. Random population sampling? Random population sampling. Because what I really want to know in an outbreak is where's the disease? Where's the virus at in this case? So where's the pathogen at and where's it moving? Why do you need to test people? Why couldn't you just test all the doorknobs and the grocery oh, we, store. We, we, could, sa like we could sample doorknobs, okay. that's exactly right. We, we, we just need samples globally. Now there's right, differences in sensitivity, but what you're really asking the question is there is where's the virus? Because if I know where the virus is, then I'm gonna design my limited movement orders or hey, don't go here to stop the spread. That's the idea. 
So why didn't we do that is the, is the question. Well, this is like any new disease. Um, we didn't have a test, so we had to make a test. And then we had to make sure the test worked. And then we had to get the test to labs and we had to train those labs um, to get all those bits, bits to happen. And if I look at novel disease introductions in the animal world, where we're less regulated, we can kind of, you know, write it's not a human disease. And for good reason, we're, not, we're less regulated. You know, we, we can gear up pretty quickly, but even, even in our really what I think, and we do a lot of testing, we do a lot of infectious disease, we submit samples for infectious disease all the time. This is not a human thing, right? We don't have infectious disease routinely in the US, so we don't sample and test aggressively. We sample and test really aggressively, particularly in the livestock world. And even us, we can't gear up that fast, and we have this existing lab infrastructure. So there's some real limitations on scaling up a test, and scaling up a test that works, and scaling up a test that gives you accurate results. Because if, if I test you and it comes back positive and that's a false positive, that's, that's detrimental to you, right? Because now you're going to be quarantined. You're going to think, oh, my God, I'm going to die or whatever. I mean, so we want to test that's accurate. And so there's, there's some gear up bits. So then you really have to start making the hard choices of who should I test and who should I not test. And their strategy has been in a really limited testing availability, really available lab capacity um, to test those that are diseased to know where they're at. Um, it's above my pay grade to decide if that was the right strategy. I mean, conceptually, I would have done some different things, but I don't fully understand the limitations that they've had. And so um, there's certainly been a tremendous amount of criticism in the press about what's going on with testing. I think no matter what they did, they were going to get criticized. Um, and I'm sure if you asked them, would they, would they tweak it? Would they do it different another time? Sure, I'm sure they would. It's hindsight's 20-20. But uh, ideally, we like to know where that infection's at, and we just haven't had the testing resources to get that done. What's the end game here? What's the goal if, if you're in charge of this outbreak in the U.S.? Um, is, it, is it just we want to eradicate this thing or control it? Well, we'd love to eradicate it, but let's, that's not going to happen. The genie's out of the bottle. So we're really in a, this idea of flatten the curve. How do we have fewer cases or extend those cases? If we think about controlling mortality and we see what's happened in Italy, and that's a good healthcare system, right? I mean, that's not some backwards, non-industrialized country that doesn't have anything going on, right? It's, this is a modern healthcare system that would be well-respected. They've just overwhelmed it. They didn't stop transmission. It didn't, you know, right? They, got, they appeared to be aggressive. It wasn't aggressive enough. It really got out of control. Um, which is what happens when you first get outbreaks of diseases in regions, right? I mean, you don't fully get your head around it and it's hard to be aggressive and get it. We do it all the time. So I'm not being critical. That's, a, that's just a fact of what happened. And so that, now that's overwhelmed the healthcare system. They don't have enough ventilators for the people that need them. So I think our goal is how to, goal one is, how do we not overwhelm the healthcare system at once? And that goes back to flattening the curve. That goes back to flattening to the curve. This. And then how do we really focus on protecting those that are most likely to die? Because if you're just going to get sick and you miss a couple of days at work, and I've got to prioritize that against someone who's going to die, we need to shift our resources, which are limited, to protect those that are really going to die. And this is just much like influenza and, and right, how do we protect vulnerable? And that's really what we're going to have to focus on. So it's a... It's a suck less program, for lack of a better term. Where do vaccines fall into us controlling this? I think that's where we're going to really get ahead in control. But 
you know, as we've talked previously, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, vaccines are hard. We don't want to put a vaccine out there that doesn't work. We don't want to put a vaccine out there that doesn't, that's not safe. Um, really, that's a big issue, right? Safety first. We don't want to do any harm. And so we got to get us, we got to get a vaccine built. They're working like day and night on that. We got really, really smart people working on that. I, I just continue to be impressed as you, as you read the stories and, you know, right, I'm, I'm a nerd. So I sit around and read a bit of those scientific literature. The stuff they've done in the last two months is mind boggling. Um, there are really, really smart people working really, really hard on this, but it still only goes so fast. And so it's going to take us a year and a half. It's going to take years. us a year and a half or two years before we get mass distribution of a vaccine. But that will slow it down and that'll help. And probably at some time the virus will burn itself out. We'll get herd immunity. Uh, we'll get everybody immune enough that the probability of contact between an infected and the susceptible drops low enough that every infected person creates less than one new infection and that's the end of the that's the end of the outbreak. So that's the the end of when we would start to be in this panic phase. Not that we should be in a panic phase right now, but that's the the question of when is this over? It's over when we have herd immunity. Is that the right way that's to That's exactly it? right. And so what we don't know is when are we going to get herd immunity? And so if I knew the answer to that, I'm sure I would be a multimillionaire and not sitting here. I'd be flying around in my own private jet, right? Because can I, I go with yes, you? Yes, you can sit in the back. Actually, <laughs> yes, you, but, right, I mean, that that's where we'd be at. Because if you could knew that amount of information ahead of time, that would be really critical for these decision makers. We started this talking about we've closed all the colleges and now we have to open them. We're going to have to bring students back, open them back up. That's a pig term, right? So that's horrible. I shouldn't be using it. But when are we going to decide to open classes? open back up a pig term? So I close the herd. Okay. I'm going to open the herd to movements again. I see. Well, this isn't a herd. This is a college campus and we have students. But we're going to have to make a decision one day to say, no, we're going to have in-person classes again. So when do you do that? So ideally, that would be at the end of the epidemic. So if I knew that, that would be really cool. I would predict, right, if you look at every other infectious disease, and I'm uh, this is just pattern recognition of what's happened with other ones, respiratory diseases tend to get better in the summer. We have sunlight. The virus doesn't survive outside the host quite as well, outside a person quite as well. We're all outside. We open the windows, yada, yada, yada. We're not, you know, indoor, inside, hanging on doorknobs, et cetera. It'll probably get better this summer, regardless of what we do. We should go film these podcasts in Florida or Cancun or... Yes, very much. Yes, that's exactly right. We should be doing all of these podcasts near the equator. Okay. I'll, yes. I'll put prefer- a request preferably in. Preferably with a Mai Tai. That would just make this better. But um, no, I think it's going to get warmer, right? It'll get better. And then the question is, did we get enough herd immunity? So when you all come back inside next fall, do we see another burp? Do we see another bump in the, in the epidemic curve? And so uh, I don't know that. Nobody knows that. And I think that's why everybody's trying to really be aggressive now to say, can we control this thing enough that we don't go through a, a another increase, another epidemic curve come winter again? All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for all that information. And here's to flattening the curve in the future. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one, or you can email us at the round barn at vetmed.illinois.edu. We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing, we also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.